You're listening to the Gonzo Back to the Future specials. I'm Alex Shaw. This is Back to the Future 3. Welcome back. This week I am again joined by Neil Taylor and James Batchelor of Game Burst. This is the concluding part of our Back to the Future specials. We've got a lot to get through, so let's just jump right in. Hello, James, and hello, Neil. Hello. hello. Thanks for having us back. No problem. Anytime. The opening of Back to the Future 3 is the only scene in the trilogy that is present in every movie. This universal nexus point of history that, in this timeline at least, represents the first ever trip out of history, since the only one before that was Marty coming in. There's such a desperation and such triumph in this sequence. It's got an almost Victorian feel to it, with the lightning rod of Frankenstein, the electrical gadgetry of Nikolai Tesla and the time machine of H.G. Wells, and all orchestrated by a man who has not seen the future or the past outside of his own life, trusting only to his new theories and the learning that he has dedicated himself to. Doc risks all for Marty, even tangling with a bolt of lightning to send him back. And then, seconds later, a new Marty appears to let him know his job is not nearly over yet. And then the music softens to let us know that this is going to be a sweeter and more emotionally driven tale than the first two. I just, it, I just love it's... this opening. I like, for, for me, so Back to the Future 3 was the first episode, I, I, I first instalment that I'd seen. And before that, I, I loved the idea of tri- time travel, but the only time travel film I'd seen you know, was the Hasty Wells, the time machine, the original one with the Murlocs and all that. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that and being really excited about it and it being boring because it's just, it's a man sits in a... A chair. A, a wicker chair. He sits in a chair and things change around him, which is, you know, fine, okay, brilliant, yes, the world changes. And then he gets to the future and he spends like an hour or so on what looks like an old Star Trek set. Actually, it looks like the Teletubbies. It does, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it was all a bit, it's like... I had a theory that there were grey Teletubbies living underground, the Morlock Teletubbies. Yes, I can imagine. (laughs) Neil, you were going to say something. Tinky Winky, la la, dipsy and... (laughs) I was just thinking, the opening to this one, because this is also the first Back to the Future movie that I saw, has everything... describes Back to the Future in a single scene. It's fantastic. You've got the science fiction, you've got the the friendship, and you've got the comedy. Yeah, you know, yeah. you've got the uh, pure elation that Doc shows when he sent Marty back to 1985, and mm. the sheer comic madness of when Marty reappears, saying, "I've come back, I've come back from the future," and you just have the moment of great, great Scott. Scott. And it, it's I, brilliant. It, 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 you're right. It tells you everything you need to know. It tells you right. The car is the time machine. 
obviously it requires power or speed or something mm. it's all very dramatic and you if you if you're watching it for the first time you don't quite know what's going on you don't quite understand the significance but you get the basic gist this is something to do with it's some sort of experiment you could tell that definitely. yeah exactly yeah. Marty comes back and it's like wow so there's like multiple time travelling going on here oh god I can't even it's imagine trying to take it all on board at the beginning I loved it. it this scene this scene is what made me fall in love with Back to the Future if you look closely the lightning hook is still dangling from the cable after Marty jumps back there must have only been a nanosecond window that they caught before it was yanked from the time circuits can any of you tell me what the name of the movie playing at the end of the street is no because I can't remember but isn't it one of Ronald Reagan's I, th- yes. I think it is one of Ronald Reagan's because he, um, he walks past the cinema in the first film Mm-hmm. And it shows Ronald Reagan starring in whatever. Well, it, I, I think Ronald Reagan probably wouldn't be in a film called The Atomic Kid. No, probably not. And it would be great if he was. On that note, what was one particularly daft title mooted for the original film by Universal exec Sid Sheinberg? The Atomic Kid. Very similar. The n- Almost Atomic Kid. The Nuclear Kid. The Almost. Are you going to bank on The Almost Atomic Kid? I'm not. You sound like you're mocking me. Spaceman from Pluto! What? Okay, right. Sid Sheinberg basically must have just sort of read the script and then got to the point where he's in the barn and everyone freaks out. He goes, oh, that, that's a great movie. And then put the script down. Uh, you know, to, this is to Spielberg and Zemeckis. And he was like, he, like, this guy had a lot of power in, in the studios. He was a, you know, he was a veteran. He, he was not an idiot. Said, uh, yeah, you should, uh, you know, rather than call himself Darth Vader, he should say he's a spaceman from Pluto as well when he talks to George later on. And that's how people can be like, oh, well, that's how he got the name. And um, Steven Spielberg, being the master of subtlety and um, just being able to say the right thing at the right time, sent him a uh, message uh, saying, thank you so much for the joke memo you sent out. It gave us all a great laugh. You're, you're a genius. And that kind of smoothed it over because it, Sid Sheinberg was too proud to say that he meant it really. And um, and they could just carry on doing their thing. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah. And let's, yeah, George, let's see. Hmm. He calls himself Darth Vader to a kid called George. There's no other reference in there at all. Oh, right? God, I hadn't even thought about that. George, who turns out to be a big-time sci-fi writer in the future. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm. Uh, do you know the name of the chief villain in the Wild Gunman Nintendo game? I found this out today. Go on, then. Mad Dog. I was about no to say that. Ah. <laughs> it is, mate, yeah. In Back to the Future, Doc tells Marty that he was inspired to create the flux capacitor after hitting his head on... The toilet. The toilet. The bathroom sink while trying to hang a clock over his toilet. Oh, that's Close enough. In part three, when Doc freaks out after seeing Marty in his house and runs to the bathroom, you can just see the clock hanging above the toilet he slipped on. <laughs> that's continuity I love it also I never even mentioned this but he's got like the scar on his head the, the, the red mark for all the time when you, whenever you see 50's Doc he's got that mark on his head they yeah. never forget to, to keep that up though he's got a bandage on it for quite some time as well yeah. of the three Back to the Future films three is definitely the one with the most heart putting into the background the sci-fi heavy themes of part two and replacing them with a steampunk western with very few equals and at its core an achingly tender love story of a doomed lady saved from her unfortunate destiny by a man out of time who she just happens to share many passions with Doc has spent his whole life in the pursuit of science and never seems to have met anybody able to keep up with him interested in many of the same things as him or even someone who found his great big brown puppy dog eyes and long silvery flowing hair enchanting but Clara does 
back in the 50s, and we can only assume all the way through to the 80s, he lived out a lonely existence with only his inventions and his dogs for company. For whatever reason, Marty and he began to hang out together. It led to a deep and lasting friendship for an isolated, dedicated man, so intent on suppressing his natural emotions that they repeatedly explode out of him at times of duress. Doc has sacrificed everything to the point where he even analyzes the love of Lorraine and George and that of Marty and Jennifer as some sort of natural coding that can be quantified and directed. It takes the thunderbolt of meeting Clara to make him realize the truly immaterial, inescapable unpredictability of the bond of romantic love. This turns his world upside down. On the one hand, he has to get himself and Marty back to their correct time, but there's the romantic side of him that has been ignited by the sweeping grandeur of Hill Valley, circa 1885, that would rather stay and live out a simple life shoeing horses and fixing wagons, and another first, interacting amiably with the good-natured townsfolk. It's maybe a less selfless existence, but after the advances he's made and what he's given up, it's the one that he deserves. In the end, he manages to combine his two choices and lives as an inventor in the West, married to Clara, and unexpectedly passing on his genes and lineage to his new sons, Jules and Vern. I I love the fact that um, Doc just seems so happy in the West. Mm. Even before Clara turns up, you can tell that he's really comfortable it's the life he's always wanted yeah which for, you know for a man of for a man of science who's coming up with all this futuristic technology to go back to a simpler time where there isn't any mm. you know it, it, it shows how maybe how much you know science doesn't necessarily dominate his life um so you say that but he's like right now i gotta get me some iced tea yeah i gotta get me some iced Screw tea. you can't get ice around here right let's see about that and it's like he's bringing all this science with him and he, he's loving it but he he doesn't necessarily have to live life you know on everybody else's terms he's still got the, the doc that we know certainly isn't gone he's definitely no. still there absolutely but I, th- I think you know part of the whole the prospect of giving up clara and going back to the future is also a part of he doesn't a part of him doesn't want to give up this life and understandably so he's got comfortable he's he's got friends and a family he's got more people he interacts with in the west you know in 1885 oh, yeah. than he ever did throughout you know the next 100 or so years yeah and he's also he's got well into the lingo when uh, when Tannen says you owe me eighty five dollars he's like how do you figure like you know he's really gotten used to being able to talk like a, an old prospector type yeah although speaking of like the lingo I, it still throws me off when um, Mad Dog Tannen goes on and calls Marty dude yeah did they say dude back in the west they do it means um, horse shit I believe oh nice okay cool. Thompson plays Maggie McFly, Marty's great-great-grandmother, as well as Lorraine, Marty's mum. But Lorraine's family name is Baines. Why did Leia play Marty's paternal great-great-grandmother when she's really not part of that family? Is there something kinky going on in the history of the McFly family? This is from the official Back to the Future FAQ. Answer. Leia plays Maggie because we didn't want to make Back to the Future Part 3 without having Leia in it. Especially in a... Mom, is that you, scene? Of course, we thought about whether it made any sense. Obviously, Maggie McFly and Lorraine Baines cannot be blood relatives. Well, they could, but it's a little bit, you know, deliverance. But 
we did come up with a satisfactory answer. It's a well-known adage that men are attracted to women who remind them of their mothers. Clearly, then, when Seamus married Maggie, that ensured that the McFly men would have a genetic trait that attracted them to women who bear a significant resemblance to Maggie or Leia Thompson. Even Jennifer is the same physical type. Fair enough. I, I, I never questioned it. You know, like, obviously, yeah, you know, she's not a Baines. I knew she's a McFly and all that, but... It just makes sense well, to technically have... she was she she became a McFly by marriage. She could be okay, from a completely yeah. different family. Yeah, Mrs. It, McFly, and don't you be forgetting the Mrs. Does anybody uh, like her Irish accent? I love it. I don't, I don't like any of the Irish accents. They're not. They're not the, but they're not. Joanna, the you're considering the future, Mister Estwood. It's like she's from the Lucky Charms box. Yes, very much. Estwood. Estwood. There's a weird stretch of it. Estwood. Estwood. I have no idea what she thinks she's saying. But it just, it, I didn't question me, because, like, you know, that, that whole, you know, mom, is that you, that scene has to be a layer of something. If they yeah. brought in someone else, yeah. you would have all the fans thinking, who the fuck is that? Yeah. And, and in, in this case, it's no, it's just, oh, okay, you know, it's just, it's just the ancestor of the McFly's, it's the you layer kind of, of the accept time. it really quickly, actually. You're, it's only when you yeah. think about it, Kevin, you're like, hang on a second. I think, think yeah, they even, like, subtly kind of joke at it, wasn't it? Like, he wakes up and he's like, you're my mom. You're my, you're my who are you? Who are you? <laughs> I was going to say, it, 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 it's like most of those movies. If you think too hard, don't. It, you just go with, <laughs> because it's not a Back to the Future movie. Without that whole, Marty gets knocked out, comes right. to, and does the whole, Marty, Actually, on, you. on that note, the Back to the Future series is riddled with rhyming moments and deja vu. How many can you name? Right, the waking up mum, uh, the, the you- wandering into Hill Valley Town Square. Oh, oh, yes, I never got that one, yeah. He it starts with a kind of high camera shot that lowers down and a weird... Wah. Um, obviously, there's the, the scene, the opening scene, which is in all three. Neil, jump in if you if you feel like it. I'm actually thinking, I can't think of any. No, there's more. Oh, there there's are so many. I've got a huge... It's always great Scott heavy moments. It doesn't have to be in all three as well. A lot of them um, are it's, only in two. There's the the what's it the the chicken and the just the the camera shots of stopping and looking over his shoulder and turning around. That's in two and three. Well, two and three yep. There's also the fact that if Marty goes into either a cafe or a bar, Biff will turn up. Yes, or a and cannon will turn up, and they'll and say, "Hey, McFly!" And more often than not, has told McFly to not go into the bar. Yeah, I don't I want to see you in here anymore, McFly. I thought I'd done told you not to come in here anymore. Hey, you ain't McFly. You look like him, though, especially what? in that dog ugly hat. What you kind of that hay barber? What on earth was Seamus McFly doing dealing with Mad Dog McC- Mad Dog Tannen? I think what? basically Biff just saw him and thought, "Who is that Irish bug?" Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, I'm trying to think. Maybe, maybe just the Tannens hate the McFlies, no matter what. Yeah. Manure! Manure! Yes. In all three films, Biff gets a face full of manure, or a Tannen gets a face full of manure. If there was manure in 2015, he'd have gotten it in the face. In all three, they get knocked out. Uh, sorry, Biff gets knocked out. Biff gets knocked out, yes, but through, um, usually through Marty. In one and two, and I don't think three, mm-hmm. Marty will push over his three henchmen and they'll fall down fall down the line. Yeah, I don't think he does that in the... Uh, in I don't this, think uh, he does that in this one. No, he uses the chandelier in three. Uh, Doc builds a breakfast machine twice. In the uh, in the very opening of Back to Future One, you got this sort of weird like um, breakfast. I think it like it makes breakfast for Doc, but also pours this yeah. disgusting slop for Einstein. But he has one in 1885, which involves poking a chicken. <laughs> That's not oh, science. Yes. Sorry, Doc. That ain't. 
you know, I found that every morning when I poke this chicken, it lays an egg. No, it's found the exact same, the exact spot on the chicken where if you poke it with the right force, it triggers the receptor nerve that then sparks the... Yes. I don't know what I'm talking okay, about. Okay, really. after Biff comes in and goes, Hey, McFly, what usually follows? Marty turns around. No, there's a skateboard slash hoverboard slash horse chase involving Tanner and his gang. Oh, yeah. It's actually a little bit later in Back to the Future 1. It's, it, it's when George goes, I knew density in the second trip to the cafe. But, uh, yeah, all of them feature a chase. Yep, around the square. Um, Marty always wakes up. Uh, Marty always has to be knocked out before he gets woken up by his mum, uh, by a, a car, a bludgeon to the head, and a fence. Uh, and oh, Marty has to convince Doc that he's real twice. Yeah, I love that moment. I love that moment in, in um, Back to the Future Three at the start because yeah. that's the bit where um, they they oh so subtly recap the um, the events of Back to the Future Part Two, but really quickly. Yeah. In that quick, it does make sense. But you, you have to go back to the book and the book of Day Five, and, like, and he's speaking so quickly that I can't actually recreate it yeah. because I can't remember what he said. But it works. I also love. Doc's got, and this is one for Glee fans, Doc seems to have hairography. Because when, <laughs> when he goes into the bathroom, he's like, you can't be here. You I can't refuse be here. to I accept don't... that you even are here. Yeah, exactly. As he's doing that, his hair is flipping about all over the place. And he does, and it's part of the, the dramatic movements that yeah. Doc does. But that moment there, that's just perfect Doc hairography. In two occasions, Marty gets stuck because of an oversight. How do you mean? As in, uh, the Doc forgot to pack any extra plutonium the first time, and yeah. Doc forgot to pack any extra gasoline just in case they ran out of gasoline the second oh, time. good point. Yeah. More on the gasoline in a bit. I know Giles was asking about that. Doc and Marty, in two of them, hatch a desperate experimental plan to send Marty back. Yep. And Doc builds a scale model to show us what's going to happen in a nice, easy-to-explain way. That's another continuity thing. I love that when, you, when, you, when they're reading the letter, they go into the lab, and you can see... The model is still there, and he even fishes out the burnt-out car from the bin. Nice. It's just brilliant. And it's he's also, he also he puts that contraption on his head that Doc was using to try and read yes. his mind in the first one, just to sort of say, "Hey, remember this bit, kids?" Yeah. Oh, That's and true. in every film, Doc says, "I was going to say Great Scott, but he yeah, no, no, he does. He, he he says Great Scott in the first one, definitely." Also, the DeLorean has some sort of malfunction in every single film. So it doesn't start in the first one, yep. the start keeps going. Or the time circuits keep going off in the yep. second one, yep. And then in this one, he rips the fuel line. Yeah. Oh, and in every film, Marty says... Heavy. 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 Except for in this film, where Doc says heavy and Marty says Great Scott. Would you say the depiction of the West feels authentic? Uh, I don't watch many Westerns, so it's as authentic <laughs> as I can, I can imagine. Uh, can I put it as it feels authentic to the Back to the Future world? Yes. See, I, to begin with, they start taking the piss out of the way that people saw the West back in the 50s because Marty gets dressed up like a complete fool by Doc because back in there, those days, the Westerns really weren't very accurate at all. But in the uh, early 90s, it's pretty close to something like, say, Tombstone or uh, uh, Unforgiven. But uh, these days, if he was going back to the West, it would be more like um, Deadwood or something Three. really grimy and gritty and mm. cold. Three Ted to Yuma. Oh, yeah, yeah, or uh, Red Dead, frankly. So yeah. I said, I say it's very accurate to the depiction of the West for films in the early nineties. One of the things I love it's is more that accurate the, than it was before. Anyway, as much as it's not perfectly accurate, and I don't think you can be with this sort of film, mm. it doesn't feel cheesy that it's set in the West. No, I don't know about you, but like whenever I watch any time traveling thing, like 
case in point, Star Wars, uh, sorry, Star Trek. Star Trek. Whenever they go back to like the time of the gangsters or World War Two or oh, the time of the gangsters. That was a great time. That was <laughs> <laughs> the nineteen you know, thirties. The nineteen thirties. When they go back to the nineteen thirties, because there aren't any gangsters post thirties. <laughs> what about the vile gangster Jabba the Hutt? What about those evil magnet gangs? <laughs> sorry, we're being completely. I, I, I could, ha- I could hear. I could hear magnets coming. In um, the Next Generation double parter, Time's Arrow, they go back to the late 1880s. Yes. And it's and it just it smacks of cheesiness. I don't know why it just it all looks only so, so far fake. You, you can go with a TV budget. Remember that. Well, absolutely, absolutely. But I don't know. It just okay. I, I've not seen the film all the way through, but Star Trek Four, where they go back to today. Uh, mid 80s like, mid well they go back to the mid 80s it feels like you're doing this because you can not because it suits the story and in this one no it just feels perfectly of course they're going to go back to the west of course you know Doc would end up in the wild west it, yeah, yeah. it makes sense it doesn't feel jarring that mm. they're in a completely different time zone also it's filmed in Monument Valley which is a, a very evocative of John Ford westerns I am not a fan of the searches but I will be the first to say it looks phenomenal the way it's shot um, it's it, those giant canyons and the huge standing rocks in the background you can't not be blown away by that kind of uh, that vista also Absolute another good continuity thing that um, what's it the 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 uh, the structure of the courthouse as it is mm-hmm. is standing in front of like you know the hills and the cliff and all that as it is later on they haven't just stuck plunked it in the middle of the desert they've actually mm. made sure it looks like that's where Hill Valley was. It's not just Doc that grows in this film. Marty goes through some significant changes himself. At the very beginning, he started thinking fourth dimensionally after continued contact with Emmett. He knows exactly where to go and what to say to bring 1955 Doc around to the truth, despite the fainting and nine hours of unconsciousness. By the way, the same nine hours that Marty went through after being hit by Frank Baines's car. To begin with, this confounds, infuriates and flabbergasts Emmett. After the lightning bolt struck and he sent Marty back to 1985, it was proof that the DeLorean time machine worked. This lifetime of dedication to science was worth the effort and that he had fixed an otherwise jeopardised timeline. Then when Marty reappears, this spectre of potentiality that has hounded him for a week, insisting he fulfils actions he should not be capable of yet and nullifying what he thought was a successful experiment, he does what you or I might do. He faints. <laughs> Marty, meanwhile, has learned to cope pretty well with being stranded in history. He has the letter from 1885 Doc. He has experience. He's undone many wrongs and righted many timelines, avoiding paradoxes at every step of the way. And finally, he has 1955 Doc to rely on and bounce off. He's become an expert time traveller before our eyes. The one thing he does need to overcome and does by the end of the movie is his overreaction when people call him chicken. More on that later. Do we or consider yellow. Marty to be brave or stupid when it comes to taking on Biff? Because like, little Biff's, from column A, little from column B. Because <laughs> the Biffs from 1955, 1985, and indeed 2015 mm. are just bullies. They're just bullies. They're not that dangerous. The, the most dangerous weapon used against him is a baseball, baseball bat, bat in 2015. Uh, the, you know, no, 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 Biff tries to run him over twice. Okay, okay, okay. With the, okay, with the exception of that, but like you know, I can't. With the exception is, of that, it's key. Okay. <laughs> With the exception that Biff tries to smash him into the wall and shoot him. Kill him in, 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 in. Hang him. In, uh, the, the, the second go in the tunnel, that Biff is quite intent on killing him. Okay, okay. My point being, <laughs> for the majority of the time, the yeah. other Biffs are, sorry, the other Biffs are 
bullies. This one, Buford Mad Dog. Tank. Except, of course, for alternate Almanac 1985, Biff, who points who, a gun at him with every intention of killing him. This is true. Kid, I own the police! My point is, Buford is the only Talon I consider to be actually scary and actually dangerous. And the one of all the Talons, of all the Talons, he's not the one you'd go up and say, Hey, lighten up, jerk! True. But at the same time, I mean, neither would I, uh, it's not on purpose, but hit him with a spittoon covering him in gob. No, true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there was a nice little Michael Jackson moment in there. He's actually he's whispering Billy Jean to himself when he's doing a yes. walk. Which, and there's even there's even a <laughs> which uh, relates back to uh, Michael Jackson's Beat It playing in the cafe eighties and a little Max Headroom Michael Jackson there. Oh, and also we never mentioned this, but in that bedroom of that poor girl that Marty bursts into, she's got like sixteen Michael Jackson posters all over the world. She loves her some Michael Jackson. Marty's pink shirt that 1955 Doc gives him has little atomic energy patterns on it. Yep. In Back to the Future Part 3, when Doc and Marty are at the train station looking at the map of Shonash Ravine, Clara is standing in the background next to the clock with her back to us, waiting for somebody to pick her up. I never noticed that one. I had to check that one, but uh, yeah, she's absolutely there. Look for the woman in this sort of lilac dress. Would it be a fair statement to make, gentlemen, if I was to tell you that Back to the Future Part 3 is my favourite Western of all time? No, I'd agree with that. But then, like I said, I haven't watched any Westerns. It used to be. Oh, right. Which is, which is your favourite now? Young Guns 2. <laughs> I was thinking about that earlier today. Another early 90s Western with an awesome Bon Jovi song attached to it. They should remake that. No, no, it's good as it is. Leave it to Tonight I go to bed. I pray the Lord my soul to keep coming to Rock Band 3. The character of Clara Clayton is in reference to Clara Clemens, Mark Twain's daughter. Clara Clemens went on a sleigh ride with her husband-to-be, Osip Gabrilovich. The horse took fright from a windswept newspaper and bolted, while Gabrilovich lost control. At the top of the hill, next to a 50-foot drop, the sleigh overturned, throwing Clemens out. Gabrilovich leaped to the ground and caught the horse by the head, stopping it as it was about to plunge over the bank, dragging Clemens with her dress, caught in a runner. So he technically saved her at that point but she was basically hanging over the edge of the ravine by her dress mirrored later on in back to the future part three of course uh, interesting one of mark twain's my favorite quote from mark twain is history doesn't repeat but it does rhyme <laughs> nice i wasn't that wasn't part of my notes but i just remembered it that's my favorite. I think that should be part of your notes now how could Clara have erected the tombstone for Doc after September 7th, 1885, if she was supposed to have gone over the cliff on September 4th? Also, at the beginning of Back to the Future 3, would the name of the ravine be Clayton, Shonash, or Eastwood? Right. Are you all settled in? Oh, yes. no. Here we go. Break out the diagrams. Okay. AJ Gumby has entered the room. <laughs> the original history, Twin Pines, occurred before Doc Brown was even born or invented the time machine. This is how things would have been written in the history books in Back to the Future and in most of Back to the Future Part 2. Version 1, Universe A, Twin Pines. August 29th, 1885, Hill Valley Town Meeting. Nobody volunteers to meet the new school teacher at the station. September 4th, Clara arrives at the train station. Still no one is there to meet her. She rents a buckboard. While heading out to the schoolhouse, a snake spooks the horse. They run wild. The buckboard goes out of control and over the edge of Shonash Ravine. Clara is killed. September 9th, after a memorial service for Clara Clayton, the city fathers decided to name the ravine in her memory. Thus, Shonash Ravine becomes Clayton Ravine. 
Again, version one is the history of Hill Valley that happened before the beginning of Back to the Future. At the conclusion of Back to the Future Part 2, Doc is zapped back to January 1st, 1885. He settles in Hill Valley as a blacksmith, and the above events are altered because of his presence, as follows. Version two, Universe F, Shonash. Doc in 1885 without Marty. August 29th, 1885, Hill Valley Town Meeting. Doc Brown volunteers to meet the school teacher at the train station. September 4th, Doc meets Clara at the train station. They fall in love at first sight. September 5th, Doc takes Clara to the festival. Buford shows up and shoots Doc in the back with a derringer. Despite Clara's efforts at nursing him, Doc dies two days later from internal bleeding as a result of the gunshot wound. September 9th, Clara dedicates Doc's tombstone in loving memory from his beloved Clara. In this sequence, the name of the ravine remains Shonash Ravine. This history ripples into the future after Doc is struck by lightning at the end of Back to the Future Part 2. Marty, however, retains his knowledge and memory of the original history because he has come from a point in the space-time continuum in which the original history applied. If Marty were to go to the ravine in 1955 at the beginning of Back to the Future Part 3 on his way to the Pohatchee Drive-In, for example, he would discover that the ravine is called Shonash Ravine. Does that correspond with your theory on the ripple effect being something you can jump over if you're time travelling? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. All, all of that makes sense because every all, all changes move forward. Mm. Um, so you're right. You know, yes, if Marty went to Shonash Ravine in 1955 after returning from the future and, and you know and rescuing Doc from passing out in the street, then yes, it would be called Shonash. Clara, sorry, Clara, Clara, whatever her name would would not fall into the... As soon as Doc travelled back to 1885, she was then saved from the, yeah. um, the thing because he was always going to volunteer to see... You know, to take her, volunteer to pick her up. Because uh, Had Marty not been there, had Marty not been there and not travelled back to 1885, he'd have picked her up from the station, there wouldn't be a problem at all. So she wouldn't have been anywhere near the ravine. Yeah. So, yeah, that all, that all fits. Okay. In Back to the Future Part 3, Marty's trip to September 2nd, 1885, alters version 2 as follows. Version 3, Universe G, Eastwood, Doc and Marty, both in 1885. August 29th, exactly the same as version 2, Doc volunteers to meet the school teacher. September 3rd, as seen in Back to the Future Part 3, Marty shows Doc the photo of the tombstone. Doc decides not to meet Clara at the station, because he's like, if I can't meet Clara, then this can't happen. September 4th, Clara arrives at the station. No one is there to meet her, so she rents a buckboard, as in version 1. Similarly, on her journey to the schoolhouse, the snake spooks the horse and they run wild towards the ravine. As seen in the film, Doc rescues her from going over the ravine. They meet and fall in love at first sight. September 5th, at the festival, Doc's behaviour is now different due to his knowledge that Buford is going to shoot him in the back, which is why Doc keeps facing front to Buford. Because Buford never does shoot him in the festival, and due to Marty's interference, the name on the tombstone photo vanishes. September 7th, Clint Eastwood, in inverted commas, is apparently killed when the runaway locomotive plunges into the ravine. In honour of his heroic action against Buford Tanner, the City Fathers decide to name the ravine after him. Incident. I was going to say, you only notice that if you're paying attention when the DeLorean crosses the bridge, and yeah. you just briefly see the sign that says Eastwood, Eastwood Ravine. Yeah, I love, but I love that little, that little... I think it was like second or third viewing that I noticed that, but you love that little touch when you notice it. Incidentally, there's an alternate scenario that may have occurred in version 2. On September 15, 1885, Clara, distraught over Doc's death, commits suicide by jumping into the ravine. As a gesture of sympathy, the people of Hill Valley decide to name the ravine in her memory, thus putting the space-time continuum back into a similar situation as in version 1, so it's sort of self-healing. We will remain ambiguous about whether this suicide accident actually happened in version 2, so that the viewers may choose whatever scenario fits into his own theories about time travel. My brain hurts! <laughs> we 
Take a look at it, Mr. Gumby. Yay. <laughs> My brain hurts too. I like to think that the idea that um, of, you know, we've we've spoken before about the the course correcting nature mm. of the time space continuum. The idea that like Marcy and Doc happen to be riding past the area where Clara, you know, Clara's about to go over the ravine. Mm. You know, that's just I, I like the, the thing. That's just that's not just coincidence. That is the timeline kind mm. of correcting itself because previously, you know, every previously it had been in this mode where. Doc was destined to save Clara, and everything between 1885 and 1955, which is a fair chunk of time, mm, was... 70 you know, years. 70 years. You know, everything of that 70 years was fixed, and the timeline was... Not a custom, because I'm giving it a sense of consciousness again, but the timeline was stable like that, with that event happening of that 70 years. And then when Marty returns to 1885, there are subtle changes to kind of urge that, that stability for the next 70 years again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. This is the big one, because Giles asked about this. This was also on the forums. In 1885, when Marty tells Doc they're out of gas, why don't they just go to the Delgado mine, dig up the DeLorean where Doc hid it, and get the gas out of it? There are two logical answers to this one. One, the car mechanic's answer. As anyone who has stored an automobile for a long period of time can tell you, you always drain all of the fluids out of the car before putting it into storage. Doc most certainly would have drained the gas out of the DeLorean as he was going to leave it hidden for 70 years. At the 1955 drive-in, Doc specifically says, I put gas in the tank, indicating the DMC must have had an empty tank when they found it in the mine. You put it like this. If something had happened, like a spark just in the mind just a tiny little flint falls down and chips boom. ignites a little bit of gasoline boom yeah. precisely he wants to I, get rid of anything that might explode like I don't know Mr. Fusion <laughs> anything non-essential that might explode yeah no I'll, I'll agree with that I like that explanation That's answer number two the time travel theory answer which is also applicable even if uh, even if you take number one. Even if Doc had not drained the tank, he still would not have gone back into the mine for fear of creating a time paradox by accidentally damaging the DeLorean, the mine, or who knows what. He still would not have gone back into the mine for fear of creating a time paradox by accidentally damaging the DeLorean, the mine, or who knows what. After all, since Marty is now back in 1885, Doc's plan obviously worked, and worked perfectly. But what if Doc were to go back into the mine and accidentally cause a cave-in that causes even more damage to the DeLorean? What happened to the future of that DeLorean when it's unearthed in 1955 and what might that do to Marty and the undamaged future DeLorean now in 1885 as an analogy imagine a time traveller going back in time finding himself as a child and cutting off that child's hand with a meat cleaver who comes up with this shit stop being horrible to children <laughs> what happens to the adult time traveller's hand they would, that, that would definitely risk a time paradox and we know that Doc would never go out of his way to risk such a thing for fear of in the worst case scenario unraveling the fabric of space time continuum and destroying the entire universe I also wondered, why doesn't he just send yet another letter to Western Union saying, to Dr. Emmett Brown, please put an extra tank of gas in the DeLorean. But again, like, you know, that, that might just mean an extra tank of gas suddenly appears on the seat next to uh, Marty, or it might mean the entire space-time continuum unravels, because it would remove the necessity to send that letter in the first place by sending it in and of itself. Yeah. Or, more specifically, it it robs you of an awesome train sequence at the end. Stop it. Stop it. How are you not keeping up with this? That's enough AJ Gumby stuff. (laughs) 
The three musicians at the Hill Valley Shindig are... ZZ Top. Who supplied their own beards. And the song they play is an 1885 version of Doubleback, which plays over the end credits. Buford Tannen's daughter was... Daughter? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Gertrude Tannen, the old lady you heard yelling at Biff in 1955. Biff, when are you coming back? Of course. Oh, Christ, someone mated with Buford? Yep. She's 70 years young. That's I never thought of that connection, but yeah, that makes sense. Right. Doc says Clara is one in a Googleplex. What's a Googleplex? Something on the Google campus? No. No, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a large... It's a large measurement of something. It's quite large, yes. Because Google was originally, as in the website Google, was originally meant to be named after Googleplex, which is spelled G-O-O-G, I think it's O-L-E-L. But they they mistyped it when they registered Google. Oh, right. That's why why Google is Google. Uh, Any idea how long the number is? Would you say, like... uh, like a million is six digits, right? Or six, uh, one, a number is plus something six. something like ten or twenty digits? There's more than twenty. Okay. Any guesses? Hundred. It's more than a hundred. Let me tell you. A Googleplex is one to the power of Google. To write it, you would have to put a one with many zeros afterwards. The problem is, there isn't enough space in the universe as we know it to contain all the zeros. And by the time you'd finished writing, time as we know it would have ended. Interesting. And just because I'm a cheeky git, it's also the headquarters of Google, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> it's it's basically, I think, the time it would take to write a Googleplex is four times the length of time that has existed to date. Right. Wow. What if you have, like, several people, like, you know, meeting in the middle or something? Well, if you had several, yeah. <laughs> You'd have to have quite... Basically, a- it's an infinite number. Yeah, that, that's it's, scientific, it's the that's closest scientific you can get romantic. to infinity. It's almost like an Olaf nut, which is a quantifiable infinity. Yeah, and that's just the sort of thing you could imagine Doc saying about the love of his life. A few words on Alan Silvestri and his score. The original that he composed for Back to the Future was apparently rather lame, and his job was on the line, so he was instructed to go bigger and make a new score for part one. We never got to hear the original score. He delivered... Oh boy, did he deliver. And now the scale of the themes he evokes is only matched by the excitement and playfulness. It's as though colossal heavenly bodies are moving through some elegant dance too large in scale for us to properly observe. All we can do is hang on to Marty's coattails as he's propelled back and forth through time. And as all the mad science hurtles past us and we're too busy being swept up in the magic to question until later. If John Williams is God, then Silvestri, in this case, must surely at least be Albert Einstein. Available now on Amazon.com. Or iTunes. Or indeed iTunes.
in the original story, Marshal James Strickland was murdered in front of his son by Tannen, a crime he gets arrested for at the close instead of the robbery of the stagecoach. Young Strickland's life lessons learned from his father were never to give slackers an inch. This particular Strickland is the father of S.S. Strickland, the one we know and love from 1955 and 1985, which means that Strickland was probably about 70 when he told Marty, No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. But you could also imagine why that particular Strickland would be rather indisposed to one Biff Tannen. Yes, I can imagine that. But uh, I'm kind of glad they took that out because it, it, it adds so much to the, the history of the Strickland family that you, you feel really, really sorry for Strickland. And you don't you shouldn't have to feel that sorry for the old bastard. Mm. So and yeah, also, it just love, seems wrong the... that he'd actually just straightforward kill him. And it makes Buford Tannen seem just straightforward evil as well. Mm. I, I just love the fact that you know they, they included, you know, Marshall Strickland obviously that makes sense, but they included the son Strickland. And you know, never forget that word son. Discipline. Discipline. It's like brilliant. That's now now we know where slackers comes from. Yeah. And that's you know it, it's it's all those little nuggets that I mean this is almost this is the ultimate prequel essentially. Mm-hmm. Three is, is the ultimate prequel. None of this you know retcon rubbish that George Lucas failed at. Yeah. This is actually everything. All the seeds are planted in this film and make sense for the first two films that we've watched and loved. Yeah, absolutely. It's also it's like. The, the, the fact that the clock goes up and it's about the, t- the first you know, instance of America sort of really beginning to form at this stage, it's like the beginning of time. I mean, they yeah. have, they, they've gone back to the beginning of when time was relevant. And probably the, the absolute furthest they could go back without really running into trouble. Yeah. If and the story goes wrong. Almost symbolically, it's the beginning of time, you know, in that the clock starts. Before mm. that, there's, you know, not many people have pocket watches back in those, you know, back in it, those days. So it's know, definitely that, the beginning of Hill Valley at that point as well. They've exactly, only been yeah. around for a while. It's like it's just been thrown up in the past few decades, hmm. years even. Clara is a woman out of time in more ways than one. She should never have lived beyond the point that we first meet her. So every minute is a bonus for her, and her actions could technically have grave import for the future. Left unchecked, she could have inspired one student to discover atomic power, rocket flight, or even time travel decades too early, and altered the fabric of history. Coupled with this, she's the only person in Hill Valley with a deep interest in science at the time of great change in advancement. Marty's suggestion that Doc simply tell her the truth and ask her to come with him was actually the most sensible, and given the right manner of explanation, I believe she would have been very open to the idea. It takes the dramatic breakup and reuniting to seal her bond with Emmett, and clearly she's more than inspirational to him in the future. She is a great character, and, and she's she is Doc's ideal match. I mean, you will see like these um, these films where they try and come up with a brand new character that's got to fit with someone, and sometimes it doesn't quite work. Sometimes it does. You know, uh, typically uh, so. The the Bond series, for example, there are a number of movies where they've tried to come up with a, a girl that is Bond's match. You know, and they, the actress always says in the interviews, oh, she's every bit the match for James Bond. No, she's exactly, not. Yeah, and, and she's not. And she never ends up being, and she ends up being just another conquest. But Clara was just Doc's soulmate. Well, you know, it, it was just perfect. And, and yes, you know, if they, if he'd explained it properly, then yes, she would have understood. But then there's no conflict. And I think it's, it's better. And you're right. You know, it, it makes a stronger bond hmm. that she, doesn't believe him and then does believe him and that moment where she rides after him etc she has to turn win him at that point yeah well yeah exactly also mary steenburgen is luminous in this role she's so lovely 
And she's she actually plays um she's Steve Martin's wife in Parenthood, which is another one of my favourite films. And she's she's got this twinkle to her eye that makes you well, back when I was a kid I was like, Wow, she's like Mum and yeah, she's you know, she's exactly like every, you know, kid wants someone twinkly eyed like that and someone special and loving and nurturing. So when Doc ends up with her, I'm like, Yes, that is absolutely right. But now that I'm getting older, I'm like, Yeah, yeah, you know what? If I was, you know, Doc's age, she'd be exactly the kind of woman I'd like to, you know, sort of, to rediscover something that I'd never really explored before. Yeah. The psychological ancestry of the McFly house becomes very apparent at one very specific point in this film. Seamus's brother Martin, like Marty himself, is said to have been very quick to anger at being called chicken. This left him with a bowie knife shoved through his belly in a saloon in Virginia City. In the original Twin Pines timeline, this would have led to Seamus teaching his son William that violence was never an answer and to avoid fighting. William would then have taught his children and his son would have taught George McFly to avoid confrontations, twisting the original intent of self-preservation into the makeup of a man who simply cannot stand up to aggression. The fascinating upshot is that Marty is the first McFly to break this chain by volition of a deeply buried shame of his father's spineless manner. Marty is so desperate to be strong and forthright that he overcompensates wildly and allows Needles and Biff to goad him into needless confrontations. It's only when he hears about his distant relation Martin's sad fate and finds himself in Buford Tannen's sights that he realises that Tannen is an asshole and he doesn't need to worry about what assholes think of him. He faces Tannen down to protect Doc, not his pride. The chain is then truly broken and Marty is able to start a new lineage of McFlies who can assess each situation and do what's right and what's smart rather than allowing their actions to be controlled by cowardice or neurosis. Just in time, he's able to avoid the street race with needles that would have crippled him back in 1985. It's then likely that Marty Jr. with a strong, healthy and balanced father would be quite different from the foppish mook we see at the beginning of Back to the Future Part 2. See, I think like, that, that was uh, I was actually going to mention. Um, that I think, you know, Marty, because he becomes so used to, you know, confronting people and not being called chicken and like, and he's quite strict with Marty Jr. in 2015 when we see him. Mm. So Marty Jr.'s becomes... Don't you be a smartass. Yeah, exactly. So Marty Jr. Becomes oh, great, the Atrocity Channel. I can't believe we didn't mention the Atrocity Channel. Love. Yes. And uh, Marty Jr. just becomes, you know, very submissive under a very, you know, what's clearly become a very dominating father. I just and think I should discuss it with my father. Exactly. Your father! Wrong edge of time! And that's, and that's, and so it comes full circle. So, you know, that, yeah, that makes, it, it's brilliant how all that, you know, leads on. I just love it. Who are Needles' henchmen? Extras. <laughs> you know they're not just extras. After all oh, of this, this, this... This is one of your questions, isn't it? Hang on. Yeah. Uh, it's not the same as Biff's henchmen, is it? It's completely different people. Uh, go on, then. Neil, any any clues? Not a clue. I didn't even notice till I was looking at the guy on uh, Needles' left in the truck, and I was like, that is the guy who grabbed Marty's face and went, look at them pearly whites, I ain't seen a pair of teeth like that that weren't store-bought. Um, each of Needles' henchmen comes from one of the other gangs in the trilogy. J.J. Cohen played Skinhead in Biff's Gang in Back to the Future 1985 and Back to the Future Part 2. Ricky Dean Logan played Data in Griff's Gang in Back to the Future Part 2. That's the one who had the chicken noise on his uh, chest. And Christopher Wynn played an unnamed member of Buford's Gang in the third film. So what you're saying is Needles is a time traveller? No, he's he's <laughs> just got mates who are all related yeah, to yeah. a bunch of assholes who hang out with Biff all the time yeah it's in fact technically Needles is like a stand-in for Biff's son because we have no Biff Jr 
it's even been hinted that Biff actually had a daughter, not a son, because, I mean, Griff's got to come from someone. Yeah. <gasps> Griff's! What the hell am I paying you for? Okay, right. It has been mentioned that there may be a Back to the Future sequel or remake. Uh, and no. Zemeckis and Gale have said no sequel. There will not be a Back to, Back to the Future 4. Everybody involved with it has said no Back to the Future 4. I'm going to go ahead and say never say never regarding the redux, because pretty much every film can be remade, whether it needs it or not. Um, no. But if you were in charge, I know you hate them, but if you were in charge of a remake and you had to make Back to the Future today, or say, yeah, today, and just have M- Marty go back to 1985 for, from now and, and have a kind of like a, a little nod to the fact that it's the original Back to the Future, who would you cast for pretty much the same story as Marty, Doc, George, Lorraine, Biff? Shamefully. Shamefully, I and I, I don't want to say, I, I can't believe these words are coming through my lips, but I think No, don't Shia, say, no, don't, don't say, say Shia LaBeouf. That's, that's who they would cast, though. Exactly, that's exactly. That's you who we would bastard. end up with as the new, I know, that's who we would end up with as the new Marty. Oh, no, and they mustn't make this film. Exactly. Because he's Steven Spielberg's no. little bitch now, because he's, like, been in Indy and Transformers. Oh, it, God. It could no, be worse. It could have been Hayden Christensen. Oh, oh. What were you going to um, say, Neil? Did you have a suggestion for Marty? I, I do. Um, Michael, I can never pronounce his name. Sierra? Ah, no. See, he's who I class as George. Really? Michael Sarah. Now, think about it. I just, yeah, no, I can see that. I don't actually. think I can take that kind of rejection. He's a total... He's, like, made a career out of playing these sort of nervous, wussy little characters. Just think of him as George Michael in uh, in Arrested Development, which, if you haven't seen it, for God's sake, see it. He's basically a young George McFly in that. Yeah, Michael Cera as George. That'd be my choice. Uh, my actual choice for Marty would be Emil Hirsch. What's he been in? Uh, the Girl Next Door in Speed Racer. Oh, yes. No, yeah, he'd be a good Marty. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, Marty's kind of, he's not exactly cool, but he's not nerdy as a kid. No. He's, a, he's, a, he's an everyman kind of kid that you can get with. He's smart, but he's also really funny. And That'd be so much better than, uh, than, than Charlotte Burke. Yeah, I mean, he's a bit old, but sod it. I mean, Michael J. Fox was like 28 when he played Marty in the third one. So I, I'm going to go with uh, talent and uh, quality of actor over age in this one. For some reason, I can picture Sean William Scott as a new Biff. Ooh. Ooh. In, in the kind of stiffler style. Well, maybe, with, actually. That's not But a bit bad. more aggressive. I was thinking Seth Rogen. I mean, he, I know he usually plays cuddly characters, but he's, he's funny. And he, I, I, I imagine he's he probably... He, he doesn't come like, across as menacing to me. I'm trying to think. Is there a film where he's actually been a bad guy? Ooh, there's he that. was kind of menacing in Superbad. No, I'm thinking, as a cop. Is it Observe and Report? Oh, God. Rubbish. Paul Blart type film. I've not seen it, so... All right, here's the bigger question. Doc. I can't think of one. I've got a great one, but go for it, guys. I I can't think of one. I'm trying to... Although it has literally just popped in my head, uh, and it's not an exact comparison, what about Morgan Freeman 
as a no, player, you know, no, no, he's not no, crazy enough. He, he's, no, that's true. He's not physical enough. You couldn't imagine him flinging no, himself around the place. That's true. He's very calm and complete. Morgan Freeman has got some great dry little lines, like in Batman, the Tumblr. Oh, you wouldn't want yeah. about that, would you? Yeah, no, he's, 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 a, he's a sort of a quiet, still funny. He's not throwing himself yeah, about okay, the place. Fair point, fair point. I've got one in my head right now. Keep going. I can't think of... I'm trying to think of an old man that's physical, and the, and the only thing I can think of is Bruce Forsyth chap dancing at 80. I've got a suggestion, but it's very left field. Go. Jim Carrey. I thought of that. Yeah. It's not my number one, but he wouldn't be bad. I think he, he wouldn't, wouldn't be bad. bad. Um, uh, let's just do Lorraine before we go to my doc. I think Emma Stone from Zombieland and uh, uh, Superbad. I think she could play old Lorraine in in the you know in her forties, like sort of yeah. your uncle Joey didn't make parole again. We got to eat this cake all together. And, I would have uh, gone with. Um, I don't know how this would work, but and I she's also hotness for for young Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> I would suggest Emma Watson. Ooh. Ooh, that's not bad actually. Yeah, I don't. I've seen, like, I think um, pictures of her from the end of um, Deathly Hallows Part 2 where she's dressed as an old woman and she does actually look convincing. Yeah, I could see that working. She's not very American, but I'm sure she could have done an American accent. I, I still, also, Emma Stone and uh, Michael Sarah together kind of work as this oddball couple. Mm. Uh, they were, I mean, they weren't the couple in Superbad, but they were both in Superbad. Uh, okay, right. Here's my doc. I'm going to say one name for you. And just picture him with the white crazed hair and sort of, you know, shaking his head around the crazy eyes and the crazy uh, sort of, you know, mannerisms. And I'm going to send you back to the future. Yeah. Robert Downey Jr. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Damn it. How did we not see that one? Oh, yes. Because he's also very good at the the very clever muttering to himself. Yeah. Completely. He, he only he knows what he's talking about sort of thing and he's got those great big eyes that you know that when Doc gets hurt you'll know that yeah. you'll be like oh poor Doc now I don't necessarily want to see this film made if it's going to have Shia LaBeouf in it but if it's cast like Shia I just LaBeouf. cast it that would be brilliant I don't know I, I, watched, I watched the Karate Kid remake and I'm now off remakes completely see I love the Karate Kid remake that's what made me think about this oh. jacket on jacket off no. <laughs> yeah, I give you the worst remake has to possibly be a Nightmare on Elm Street, but hey. Should that... we do an episode on worst remakes? Yes, Because <laughs> there's got to be some shitty ones out there we could talk about. Oh, yes, please. It In favour of and against. It can, we can hold them on trial and go by the end. Okay, no more remakes then. Hammer well, I down. Think, I suppose the trouble is, when it comes to remakes and sort of prequel-y, sequel-y things, the one that wins is Star Trek. That, that really did work. But see, that's why I'm thinking Back to the Future again could work. Yeah, so long as it's Back to the Future by J.J. Abraham. Ooh. 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 <laughs> I'm quite happy Marty with would just be running all the time, and the camera would be running with him, and it would be all flickery with sunbursts. I'm, I'm quite happy with Back to the Future the way it is. It's oh, yeah, no, it's brilliant, as it is. Oh, because, yeah. because but you know those Hollywood vultures are going to fucking do it at some point. Oh, they, they can't they let will. stuff like this lie. I'm sure J.J. Abrams would be uh, would do a good job, but he'd make it too dramatic. Or whoever would take it would try and do their own thing with it, and it mm. would just it would re- it would reshape what it is. How about Joss Whedon? I was just about to say, can I <laughs> Josh Whedon? But Joss Whedon doing Back to the Future remake, just that headline. I'd be like, yes, yes. Although he did fuck up Alien. He did fuck up Alien. Well, Alien Resurrection. He wrote the script. He did didn't he? Oh, you know what? We'll talk about that in our Alien episode. Yep. <laughs> oh, <laughs> damn it. 
Final question, gentlemen. Now that we've done these three shows, which order of favoritism would you place the Back to the Future movies? Three, one, two. Three, one, two. Two, one, three. I love three. I really do. I love one. I really do. Two's so clever. But it's, it's, there's like a, there is a shadow's breadth in between them because I love them all so much. It's just because that two is just a shade cleverer and one works on its own as a movie just a little bit more. I think for me, one and two are dangerously close to each other. And I I, I think, you know, depending on what I've watched recently, I'd probably put two over one, but three will always be my favourite because it was the first one and it's just, it's such a triumphant Mm. ending to the whole the whole trilogy mm. that you know I mean like other trilogies generally the third ones become quite weak but this one is just brilliant yeah 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 I've got to go with three first just because it, again it was the first one I saw it brought me into this series and I just it just has that place in my heart that it can't be taken away from I love three one is a fantastic standalone movie and literally as a standalone movie it works yet it's got these two fantastic sequels to it as well hurry up get ready don't worry about a thing you're in good hands oops I still haven't worked all the bugs out of this thing but no matter we're on a mission of universal proportions Doc Biff has passed through the space-time continuum but we've got no way of knowing where he is you mean when he is and we do have a way of knowing when he is the eight-passenger time vehicle is equipped with a sub-ether time tracking scanner which will allow us to track Biff to his precise location at the precise moment in whatever time period he may have traveled to Doc, all pre-launch system checks are complete. That's our cue. Hang on to your hats. Don't forget, when you see Biff in the DeLorean, accelerate to 88 miles per hour and bump him. Accelerating now to 55 miles per hour. 65, 75, 85, 85 miles per hour! Still valley in the year 2050. Come in, Biff. Let's get him. Oh, what Back to the Future The Ride was a simulator-based ride of the Back to the Future trilogy, and it was opened in Universal Studios Florida in May 1991, and then 1993 in Hollywood, and then 2001 in Universal Studios Japan. The premise was you were sort of visitors to this new um, institute of time travel, which Doc Brown had formed post Back to the Future 3, and you were going to take a trip one day forwards in time, and you go and, you know, get into your eight-man DeLorean, but then Biff steals a time machine. This is 1955, Biff, and he flies off uh, into the future, and you've got to pursue him and bump him to bring him back, which basically means you sit in the DeLorean and you chase after another flying DeLorean through 2015 and then the Ice Age and then a particularly volcanic-looking hill valley. And it was awesome. It was was the most awe-inspiring ride I've ever been on. It utilized a gigantic IMAX screen. Um, I think it was like uh, 12 different DeLorean cars per dome. And it blew um, dry ice at you and the cars were hydraulic. So you'd sort of veer up and down and left and right. And you couldn't see any of the other cars. So you were very much in your place. You can get the footage on the Blu-ray and sort of watch you know, everything that you watched on, in, on the way up to the ride. And it's actually it was released on the DVD set um, last year. So I didn't even know this was out. But uh, you can also check it out on YouTube. Watching the whole ride on your TV screen doesn't do it justice. No. But um, when it closed uh, in uh, September 2007, I was doing the podcast at the time, and I found out about it. And if you listen to that episode, I am crestfallen. I am absolutely heartbroken because one of my fondest wishes was taking my wife and daughter to go on that ride. Mm. And now I can't. 
Oh, you can. Yeah, we'd have to go to Japan, and I'm actually considering doing it just for that ride. Can you let me know when you go, and I'll come with you? Because I, I want to go back. I, I, I went on it. I went on it um, when I was what, eleven, twelve. So mm. I'd watched like I think I'd watched Back to the Future three. I might have watched Back to the Future one. I hadn't seen two by that point, mm. so I didn't know them as well as I did now. I co- I saw the um, footage recently on YouTube because I remember I remembered the ride and I looked it up and someone's filmed everything that you saw from the car. Mm-hmm. And there's things like you actually fly, you know, over Hill Valley and into the town square and you crash through, through the, the clock. clock. Yes. And just that moment alone would be great to re-experience. My wife sat next to me gamely while I set up the entire room to make it as close to the ride as possible when we got the Blu-ray. <laughs> I turned off all the lights. I uh, made sure that the sound was way up. I put an air conditioning fan in front of the TV on random so that it blew air sort of just in, in random gusts so that it felt more like we were flying. And I linked arms with her and then just basically yanked her to the left and right with the movements of the time machine. And... Bless her heart, she really got into it, and she was, you know, really had fun with it. It's, it was the closest I could get to this childhood memory. I cannot ever go back there, and there's, there's a certain nostalgia attached to these movies and attached to that ride and attached to the story of this that's so special to me. It was part of my favourite part of my childhood. It was a place with a Simpsons ride, which now, while I love the Simpsons, it, it does feel like part of my childhood has been smashed to pieces. And it's impossible to visit again. I mean, you know, like I said, Japan is still feasible, but I think by the time I've got enough money for that and my daughter's of the right age, they'll go, oh, we removed this, we have new Simpsons ride. Gentlemen, would you like to pimp your show? You can find us at gameburst.co.uk. Uh, we do a half an hour show every Sunday and Thursday. It's a multi-format gaming podcast. Sunday we do the news. Thursday we do a roundtable topic or a quiz. Um, I'd like to thank Alex, um, actually, because you're helping us out with the next quiz, aren't you? I am indeed. Good, good, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, so be sure to check that out. Um, and thanks very much for having us on again. This is just—it's it, great fun discussing all these absolutely classic movies. Neil, do you want to talk about your radio thing? Yeah, you can find me over. Uh, the easiest way to tune into my radio show is go to airwashsound.com. I'm on air between one and four p.m. Monday to Friday. And then there's the end, which always makes me misty-eyed. Seeing the DeLorean rendered into its component parts. It marks the end of the trilogy, and while there's always rumblings of a sequel or the reboot, Zemeckis and co are adamant that the story is over. However, as one train wrecks the arbiter of the adventures we've loved, Doc arrives in a new locomotive to tell us that the future is not set. It's whatever we make of it, so make it a good one. The train then, mirroring the end of the first film, flies into the screen in an unknown, unexplored time period, signifying the beginning of countless new adventures through time with the Brown family. The technology and the theories are still very much alive, and now Doc finally has someone to carry on the work with. Marty has grown as a person, and his family are happy. The future is never brighter. Okay, and we will be back next week with another film series. Stay tuned for the very last few seconds of this podcast for a little clue as to what that might be. We will see you then. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Neil Taylor. And I've been James Batchelor.
Was die Mode streng geheimt, alle Menschen wie 